This is Smart Poker Study Episode 211, GTO with Peter Carriters clark Last week's strategy episode number 210, I discussed seven tilting situations, the math behind each, and what you can do to respond effectively. It's poker study time, y'all. Thank you so much for subscribing to the show and for sharing it with your friends. That is how we grow. And speaking of growth, we had a little bit of Patreon insider growth. That's right. I've renamed it. You're not Patreon supporters anymore. You're smart poker study. Patreon insiders. So we have a new insider in the house. His name is Frank Tanner. Thank you so much, Frank, for joining the Insider Club. I do appreciate it. And of course, for everybody else who is supporting through November, the Patreon rewards went out just this week. So they got a killer new podcast and a killer new training video to learn from. And uh, speaking of, uh, you know, all this stuff going on for Patreon insiders, right? These new podcasts, new training video and stuff. I also have two new benefits and I've upped it just a little bit from the last time I mentioned it to you. From now on, each new episode of the MED Monday, the YouTube in Tuesday video, Walking Wednesday podcast episode, and the Strategy Friday episodes, they will all be sent to Patreon insiders at least one day early. This episode that you're hearing right now, if you're subscribed to the normal iTunes or Stitcher feed, you're getting it on Friday, November, uh, what's the date? November 16th. Well, the Patreon insiders, they got it on Tuesday, November 13th. So they get it even earlier than just one day. And the second benefit is that the episode that they get is ad-free. So if you're not an ad fan, save yourself a few minutes by supporting on Patreon, joining that Patreon Insider Club, of course, and then you get these ad-free. All you have to do is visit patreon.com slash smartpokerstudy to start that support. Alrighty, it's time that we hear from Peter Clark. The last time we talked to him, it was back in episode 174. Well, he has returned to discuss his new e-magazine, which he calls PO versus Population. Now, PO versus Population, it takes an in-depth look at common poker situations. By first learning how PO Solver approaches the spot, we become acquainted with a GTO solution, and GTO is game theory optimal. So once we become familiar with that GTO solution, each episode then, it looks at the regular population to see how their strategy differs from what the solver recommends. So we use these differences to formulate a highly effective exploitative game plan against those regular players. So basically, we learn the real way to use poker solvers to maximize your win rate and blow away the regulars in your games. And after listening to the interview, I found that I didn't do really a good enough job of asking Peter about this new product. So after the interview, I'm going to come back for a couple of minutes to tell you what to expect from PO versus population and where you can get it. So as you listen, you can, of course, go to the screenshots for today, www.smartpokerstudy.com slash pod211. When you go there, you're going to find some additional screenshots um, directly from PO versus population to kind of help you understand what we're talking about. Okay, let's get to Peter Clark, or you might know him as Carriters Gambate. I have so been looking forward to today. So we have a special guest returning for his second visit. Peter Clark is back, y'all. You may also know him as Carriters, and I'm sure many of you listen to his podcast called Carrots Poker. He has written two books called The Grinder's Manual and 100 Hands, and you heard him last time with us on episode 174, and in that episode, we talked a ton about microstakes poker. But today, he's here maybe to discuss a little bit more microstake stuff, but also to discuss GTO and how we can use it to exploit our opponents. So welcome back to the podcast, Peter. Thanks very much, Sky. It's great to be back, and I am excited to once again help out the audience by sharing all the exploitative microstake stuff um, that you can throw at me. Let's go for it. Nice. I'm glad to hear that. Thanks. Well, uh, the last time we spoke was about nine months ago. What have you been up to since then? 
Oh, I intended to write a third book, you know. I think mm-hmm. I probably told you I was going to, and I have this short list of books, and, you know, I'm ready to get going with one of them. But there's just been too much other, like, poker work coming my way. I've just been kind of, you know, doing doing work for various other sites and, you know, writing articles and um, doing videos and taking on loads of private students and stuff like that. So kind of growing the business, I guess, in a, in a slightly different way, um, less of the being an author and more of just like making lots of other little products and stuff like that and just loads of private coaching really. So, but yeah, it's been great, you know, just been, just been working with loads and loads of aspiring players, which is kind of my favorite thing to do. Yeah. Awesome. Are you still coaching a lot of micro stakes or are you more like a mid stakes coach now? Um, I wouldn't say I'm a mid-stakes coach. A lot of people who play mid-stakes don't have a coach because they're already kind of like crushing their way, their way up to mid-stakes. Yeah, so I got I you. I didn't like, mean mid, I meant low stakes. I guess like sure, 100 sure. and L. Yeah, um, I coach 100 and 200 um, a bit, mainly on sites like, you know, like PokerStars New Jersey and stuff like that, where I'd say the games are slightly softer, so people maybe move up a bit faster there, um, things like that. And I coach, main games I coach are probably... 10, 25, and 50 NL are the most popular ones. But yeah, some some 100 students. I actually coach a couple of guys that play really high as well. Um, but that is rare. Most guys like that are kind of, you know, self-coaching, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does make sense. Um, or they just have a coach who, I guess, is also playing those super high stakes along mm. with them and doesn't mind imparting that knowledge, you know? Yeah, it gets quite um, secretive, I guess, as you get up to the top where people are um, very very fixated on keeping what they know to themselves and quite rightly so because the player pools are very small and if their you know the groundbreaking knowledge gets out you can see their edge and their livelihood disappear kind of quickly so it gets a bit more cagey as you get up towards the nosebleeds for sure yeah it seems like it would be maybe someday i'll be there you know i'm still a micro and a low stakes player but uh you know eventually maybe how about you where what are you playing right now um, I'm playing a bit of 100 and 200 Zoom um, on Stars just to kind of stay fresh. Um, kind of, kind of enjoying playing poker again. I guess I've I'm in a weird sleeping schedule just now where I guess I'm going to sleep about two two thirty a.m. getting up about nine or ten for work. But that's allowed me this period of time when the girlfriend's asleep and you know about midnight to about two a.m. and instead of just like wasting my time and not doing anything poker related I've been like grinding again and it's really helped me you know it's really helped inspire me to want to take the game you know grab the game seriously and feel passionate about it again because that is important as you'll know when you're creating content right you have to be passionate about what you're doing without a doubt passion does help you push through those barriers you know with it uh but you say you play like 12 to midnight or i'm sorry midnight to 2 a.m i cannot do that my brain can't function beyond 9 p.m have you have you trained yourself to work late like that i used to work night shift for a living and a few weird things happened to me my first job first real job was um being a croupier you know like a dealer in a casino and um i would work like all night and a few weird things happened after that one is that I can't sleep as well in the darkness. I now sleep better when there's like a little bit of daylight. Hmm. Really weird. And another one that's happened is that I don't get tired at night. Um, I can stay up like absurdly late and I'll pay for it the next day. Don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. my brain doesn't have so much of a switch where it goes, you know what? You've been awake for 16 hours now. You should probably go to bed. I have to consciously kind of program myself to do that. Um, otherwise, I can accidentally stay up all night. Yeah, gotcha. Have you ever taken these um, late night skills of yours to the live felt? Because I know at uh, brick and mortar card rooms, late night games are really where it's juicy because players have been in there for four or five hours. They've had four or five beers and they're playing terrible. Have you ventured to the live realm? I mean, on and off, but I think if there is one thing that might actually put me to sleep at that time, it might be playing in a live full full of slow paced drunks. Gotcha. Gotcha. Maybe profitable, but yeah, that does make sense. Maybe you, then you can't function because uh, you need that little bit of distraction. I mean, how many tables? Well, if you're playing Zoom, are you like four tabling it or three, three tables max? Well, I used to play two or three, but now that my game is, I've worked a lot with um, GTO solvers and stuff recently, and I've come up with strategies based loosely on those for sort of, you know, having a, having a strong default game is really important when you get up to these stakes like 100 or 200 where players are quite competent these days. And once you, ha- once you have that and you can sort of not autopilot because you are always aware, you're kind of like a, you're like a bird of prey, you know, you're swooping about and you're, you're in your zone and you're doing a lot of default things like that swooping 
and looking is kind of subconscious and you're running your default game all the while in the background while you're doing that. So you're not switching off or autopiloting, but you're committing to your subconscious a lot more decisions because you've studied a lot of the theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, I have a solid base game. And because of that, I can four table effortlessly these days and only really get overwhelmed when you know you get four tables of extremely difficult spots at the same time and end up timing out on two of them and butchering the other two if that happens. But when that doesn't happen, it's fine. There's variance in multi-tabling, you know, it just depends whether it whether it rains all at the same time or not, I guess, with the decision making. Yeah, definitely makes sense. Do you have you always been a, a like a proponent of Zoom? Because I've always figured, you know, when you're playing uh, non-Zoom, just regular tables, you really get a good read on all of your opponents. If you're using HUDstat software, you get yeah. you know a ton of hands, those stats develop, and then you can really find some good exploitative plays. But it yep. seems like you're able to take uh, your learnings and figure out how to adapt your style of play to kind of like an, an ever-changing table of players. Is that what's going on? Yeah, so you have your default game, which you would play against a reg. Then you have a default game that you play against a weaker player, like a recreational. And you can obviously spot who the recreationals are because they don't have a full stack or they use a non-standard sizing pre. Perhaps they limp or they take a funky bet size. You can spot them very, very quickly. Mm. Um, so I have a default game for playing against the population of regs and inbuilt in that default game are as assumptions about how the population of regs as an average is going to misplay. And obviously there are exploitative assumptions in that default game. It's not just like trying to play complete GTO or anything like that. Um, And when it comes to the weaker players, obviously the default game is highly exploitative. Now I totally agree with you though, because I don't, I'm not going to have, or no one is going to have the same win rate. Let's take a 10 and L grinder. This guy is not going to have the same BB per 100 playing zoom than he is at regular, as he is at regular tables, because on the regular table, like you say, he'll pick up more reads. He'll be able to make more specific adjustments on a level of detail higher than he would in the Zoom pool. And moreover, like when he gets metagame going with a particularly tilted weaker player or something like that, he's going to become like one of the main beneficiaries, if not the sole beneficiary of that guy's mistakes. And that's really cool. And that does give you a huge boost to win rate. The thing about Zoom is you get way more hands per hour. So in Zoom, you may have a similar hourly by having a smaller big blinds per 100, but playing a lot more hands per hour. So I would I would summarize though by saying that, you know, start off at regular tables because when you're first starting out, you're not going to have that really solid foundation that I've worked for years and years and years to try and build in my own game. Or, you know, the high stakes guys have got down as if they're a computer program. You know, you're not going to have that. And a lot of your edge is going to come from reactive play and identifying exploits, not from being super mathematically sound. So I think Zoom is interesting. It's a totally different thing and you can have a similar win rate, but at first you'll probably do a lot better at regular tables. Gotcha. And you know, what you just said, that strikes me as really interesting. And maybe that's another reason why Zoom can be profitable because there are so many people who start off playing live. They go to online, they see this Zoom. Oh my gosh, I could play hand after hand. I'm not bored at all like I am live. So these brand new, very weak, uh, maybe, you know, low skilled players start off on Zoom and then you being there, understanding how they play, already developing population reads and exploits against them, it probably makes Zoom really profitable because those players can't handle so many hands. And like you said earlier, if they're two-tabling Zoom, they just might get inundated with so much information, they're making bad choices and you're capitalizing on it. Yeah, and I mean, they'll make bad choices anyway. As far as a reg is concerned, you know, a recreational player who's coming in from the brick-and-mortar card room and playing online poker for the first time is, you know, with respect, probably going to be making a lot of very large blunders and um, we're going to spot that as serious poker players and we are going to take advantage of it. So we don't necessarily need to know exactly what someone is doing wrong to be able to exploit them because we could say 85% of weaker players in this situation will be doing this thing wrong. And if I adapt to that 85% read, you know, 8.5 times out of 10, I am going to be crushing maybe the 1.5 times out of 10 it doesn't work out for me because I'm wrong about that one individual. He's an exception to the mold. But over the long term, that's what we're doing. We're taking imperfect edges with, with imperfect information in poker anyway. So yeah, Zoom is, you can still exploit. You're just exploiting in a less personal um, way. But yeah. the, the thing I find really interesting about Zoom is that 
it does remove a lot of the adversarial kind of tilt, you know, that kind of vengeance tilt that goes on oh, a yeah. lot with weaker players at regular tables. Sam, that can be one of the most profitable experiences, especially as a former heads up player. Um, you know, when you have a you have a weaker player who's just, you know, it's Friday night, it's probably had come back from a bar or something like that and just sort of losing control, so to speak, of their game and just like throwing money around. And that's not going to happen in Zoom in the same personal vendetta-based way. Um, so yeah, the scope is smaller for your edge, but perhaps you can make up for that in volume. For me personally, it's really all about an aesthetic experience. Like I don't play poker as my main source of income. I teach, I write, I make training content. Um, I do play for side income, but I like to, I guess, play Zoom. For me, that's like having a comfy office chair or being in a nice environment um, when I'm working because it's just easier than having to table select, than having to um, deal with games breaking, with having to scour the lobby and join wait lists. Nice. That makes total sense to me. Um, how is it that you are uh, developing these population reads that, that you can now utilize to exploit Zoom players? Honestly, it's through coaching primarily mm-hmm. and playing. I'd say about 80% coaching, 20% playing because I see a lot more hands, analyze a lot more hands with my students than I do on my own because so much of my time is spent working on one-to-one mm-hmm. um, lessons. So, you know, a 10 and L player, I don't play a 10 and L, um, but a 10 and L player could show me a batch of 15 hands in an hour. We could do another lesson the next week. Meanwhile, there's another 15, 20 students at those stakes that I'm teaching, you know, that six month period. It's not long before I learn exactly how the pool plays just from seeing my students play, basically. That makes sense. You're basically immersed in it because of your students. And I, I feel the same kind of thing. You know, when I'm coaching my students, we're constantly going through their hands and I get to see how they play. I have a couple of maniac students and I get to see how maniacs think about hands. And I have a couple of uh, rather fishy, you know, loose passive students and I get to see how loose passives play. It's, it's awesome being a coach, man. Gives you yeah, some good insight. Absolutely. Yeah. Maniac students are the best because you get to, you get to see almost like the logic of the maniac like you don't think there is any because you just imagine someone like falling over and like drinking <laughs> vodka and hammering their keyboard but there is yeah. logic that goes into the the maniac's kind of intuition as well mm-hmm. there is for sure 100 percent. so uh speaking of maniacs right in mm-hmm. the micro stakes and i can't speak to zoom but when you're playing like on america's card room uh there are so many at 25 and 10 and 50 and L. There are so many maniacs at the table whose stats, they're like, you know, 35, 25, like just super ultra aggressive. Mm-hmm. How, how can you really exploit that kind of aggression? Um, whether they're in position or not on you, if they're just sitting at your table, how do you exploit crazy maniacs? Rope. Give them rope. Mm. I mean, if you have a player who can't, like this is the kind of player we're talking about here, right? Who we almost are just shocked if they don't show aggression like we're almost shocked if they don't attack us in some spot so there are 1326 combinations of whole cards in a limit hold'em um if you go crazy with all 1326 of them obviously you become a 100 100 raging lunatic now what the maniac you're talking about which is like the semi-reg maniac he's whittled down his pre-flop range to 35 to 25 percent of hands but when he gets post-flop with that range, he's over-bluffing almost every single situation. So when he's betting, um, you just call. You have to embrace variance. You have to call down second pair. You have to look at your blockers as well. If you're removing, if your cards happen to contain cards that remove his value range, like his good hands, you're going to see an EV and calling down there. But more importantly, rope. I'll go back to this concept. To give someone rope in poker is to check to them um, with a stronger range of hands than normal and let them do the betting. Now, against the Maniac in the game where we're playing No Limit Hold'em, the game where most hands will miss most flops and people will have nothing, the best way to get value from nothing is to allow the player who's bluffing far too often to do exactly that. So I just recommend doing things like you open blind versus blind, Maniac Reg calls. Instead of just C-betting and getting floated and raised all the time, just check all of your range to start with. Just let him go first. Use information. Let him go first and negate his position. If he's going to bet every single time he's checked to, he's not using his position in any way, shape, or form. He's just putting out a bet blind. Would you want to post a big blind after the flop without seeing your cards? Presumably not, right? But he's doing that. If he's betting almost every time or he can't resist betting when checked to, let him bet first, then develop a sensible calling range of showdown value. 
and maybe slow play some hands, especially ones that would not block his bluffing hands, his main gut shots and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe check raise with some very good hands for value sometimes on weatherboards, especially. Maybe check raise bluff. You know, if he's going to put out a bet with almost all of his range in that situation, then throw in some check raise bluffs with overcards and um, backdoors or gutters, or if you're very, very lucky, an open ender or something like that. But generally, you have to be prepared to let the maniac go first and then do some attacking. Also, do some folding. The main thing I'd say as well is don't play into this guy's game by just calling one street and folding the next one. You know you're going to face a very high aggression frequency throughout the turn in the river, so don't call the flop with a hand you know you're going to have to let go of very often. Either you know embrace the variance, take a deep breath and call down, or let it go in the flop and wait for a better spot. But rope, check, let him make the mistake of betting an unrefined range at you. That's the best thing that can happen. I love that. And and I understand that part that you said about weathering the variance because occasionally he's going to hit something and you're calling down with top pair weak kicker or even second right. pair good kicker. And occasionally he's going to have it, but you're right. Give them rope because they just cannot help themselves from getting aggressive post-flop. Uh, so I, I really love that one. What about the opposite spectrum? What about those super passive fish that play like you know 60% of hands and they only raise 5% of the time? What can we do against them? Um, just isolate them with a large size. The main thing about these players is that you don't need a very good situation to make a lot of money from them. You just need an average one and position. So be prepared to isolate them very wide. Above all else, though, try not to share them with other people if you can help it. You know, if one of these guys opens for men in the hijack, let's say you're on the bottom of 9-8, so don't flat and play a four-way paw. Just three-bet the guy. And okay, you won't be ahead of his range. You'll be, you'll be a dog to his range in equity. But let's face it, do we really care about equity when we're playing in position against a really, really weak, bad face-up player? No, we're going to make it, going to take his money anyway. So I guess the thing to the main thing to do is get this player to yourself, do a lot of value betting, do a lot of betting with high EV bluffs as well, um, have good redraw prospects, have good improvement possibilities. But you know, don't get frustrated if your card dead because this is not the guy to fire a triple barrel at and try and make him full top pair. Absolutely. I love that. See, I said at the very beginning that I was so looking forward to today. And the reason why is because, you know, the first time and then now on our episode, you're just dropping value bombs left and right. And I think our audience is going to get a ton from this, especially my audience being a lot of low stakes and micro stakes players. This is perfect stuff. I really appreciate it. Well, that's what, that's what we're here for. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's usually a beneficial thing because my job is for people to see that I can help them with their game and it's just like yours is and for them to then you know check out our websites you know listen to our podcasts see the products that we offer and that's how we make a living so I'm more than happy to give people um, free stuff in exchange for getting exposure and for them finding out who I am because that's why I need to, to you know, keep doing what I love so absolutely Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash smartpokerstudy. They have over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And of course, you can listen to it directly from the computer as well. And they have my three books, How to Study Poker Volume 1, Volume 2, and Preflop Online Poker. Because preflop online poker is the most expensive, when you start your free audiobook trial of the the free 30-day trial, download preflop online poker for free. Then you purchase How to Study Poker Volume 1. Listen to that first, and then, of course, listen to preflop online poker. In order to get the most out of preflop online poker, you want to basically know how to study poker, right? So that's the order that you're going to go through. Once again, please visit audibletrial.com slash smartpokerstudy to start your free 30-day trial and get a free audiobook download. Alrighty, back to Peter Clark. Um, speaking of products, you do have a brand new e-magazine that you put out called Pio versus Population, and this is all about GTO. Now, for me, being a microstakes coach and everything, GTO has always felt like something beyond like, Oh, that's something Mm -hmm. that low stakes and mid and high stakes players uh, go through. But you are taking with this new product that you've got, you're taking GTO theory and using it in exploitative way. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, the main thing with GTO, unless you're playing at the very highest stakes. Well, first of all, let's just clarify what we're talking about here, right? People have 
misconception about what GTO is. GTO stands for Game Theory Optimal, and what it's all about is basically taking two optimal players, right, computers or solvers or something like that, that have perfect information about each other's strategies, and they play, they don't know what each other's hand is at any point, right? They don't know each other's cards, but they know each other's strategies, like how they'll play their ranges, what frequencies they'll bet with, what kinds of hands they might use, this kind of thing. And basically to get the GTO, all that's happening is that these two solvers are battling and adapting each other, their own strategies against one another until they reach what's called an equilibrium, right? When you reach equilibrium, you reach a point where you can't improve your strategy any further. A good analogy here is something like rock, paper, scissors, where we, if I started off not knowing much about rock, paper, scissors, I might play scissors all the time because I like scissors or whatever. You might play rock a lot. I find out that I'm losing. I switch to playing paper. I start winning. You switch to scissors. Eventually, we just start playing 33% of all of them, and neither of us can make any further improvement. Now, imagine that over a game that's like millions of times more complicated, and that's what GTO is basically it's that agreement that we're going to play this way because we've reached this wall where we can't play any better right now that's a scary thing that there's a solution to poker the reassuring part of that is that that GTO solution is not accessible to humans because it's far too complicated and ridiculously um, intricate so we don't try to play that we don't try to actually apply that exact GTO rather what we should do with the solver and we should feel we should feel quite excited about solvers in the sense that they can show us general patterns. For example, in the first episode of Pio versus Population, right, which I've just brought out, it's an e-magazine where we look at Pio, Pio's answer to one spot, but we only focus on specific elements of it, and we talk about why the solver wants to do that, just like we talk about why a human would want to make a play. And in the first episode, we're talking about how the population is going to handle a king, queen, jack, rainbow board. And we're talking about how the GTO is going to open our eyes to how we might be able to play this spot a little bit better. And so on this board, we can see that Pio is actually recommending betting with some hands that people don't normally bluff with. For example, spoiler alert, something like pocket fours has quite a high betting frequency there. Now, I don't know about you, Sky, but most of my students would never dream of betting pocket fours on King, Queen, Jack, Rainbow. Generally. Yes, most of them for sure, not betting it. Not betting it. And what happens when they don't bet it is that they don't bluff enough. Now, they don't get punished for that at the micro six. They can still beat their way through 5NL, 10NL by playing an unbalanced in that respect. But when we get a bit higher and we start seeing that regs are playing in the same way, you know, my opponents at 100NL are, are doing the same thing. They're not betting pocket fours there because they're not really aware a lot of them aren't aware of the, the theory that you should be. The reason that you should be is quite humanly understandable. It's that on King, Queen, Jack, you don't have a whole lot of natural bluffing candidates because if you happen to have a straight draw, what do you also have in your hand? You have a pair as well, right? A lot mm -hmm. of the time there. You're not just going to have a bunch of random 10 rag or 9 rag in most preflop situations. So the next logical thing you can bluff with if you don't have much natural air, you don't have flush draws or straight draws or anything like that, is maybe a two-out hand, like pocket twos or something like that. And the solver um, recommends betting that because it just capitalizes on the fact that it's a very good board for the in-position player, for the preflop raiser. This king-queen-jack is very favorable for preflop raisers. So we should be betting some outside-of-the-box hands there that people don't think to bet. And the idea with Pio versus Population is showing you, um, as the poker student, where it is that people miss these things and showing, like, why does Pio recommend doing some things that aren't actually that obvious to us? And where does the expected value come from, the EV come from, um, by doing those things? So I'm trying to, I guess, in this e-magazine, bring a solver and a GTO kind of solution to people like your audience and a lot of the people I teach who are playing you know, 5NL, 10NL and show them that they can understand what a solver is doing if I get the details for them that matter and take away all the noise, you know, take away all the data that's looking like it's all just frequencies and percentages. And I totally get why you would be inclined to think that GTO is just something for high stakes players. Because when you look at a solution, right, it's all mind boggling. Do this 63% of the time, do this 17% mm -hmm. of the time. We take the lessons out of that. If pocket threes is getting bet 85 or 90% of the time in that spot, there must be a very good reason for betting it that we can make sense of. 
right? If it's just being bet 50%, it probably means that in equilibrium, which means the two solvers playing perfectly against each other, it doesn't matter. It's only being bet 50%, whether you bet it or not. Um, but we can then say, well, it might not matter for Pio whether we bet it, but hold on a minute, I'm playing in a 10 and L game and I know that the regs fall too much in this spot, so I'm going to bet that hand all of the time, that 6-7, instead of half the time on that king-queen-10 board or whatever it may be. So um, we can apply this stuff to the games we play in, but we need someone or something to simplify and take out the meaningful details for us, and that's what I'm trying to do with the C-Magazine. Gotcha. So just a couple things to clarify for the audience. You say Pio. That's a program called Pio Solver, P-I-O Solver, right? Um, yes. Do you know who created that program? Um, I actually don't. I think the company just goes by Pio or Pio. Mm. However, I think it was meant to be Pio originally, but we've kind of butchered that as a community. So now it's Pio. What do you do? Pio um, Solver. Okay. Pio Solver, yep. And it's... um. You can go to their website, you can pick it up. I'm not in any way affiliated with them, but I'm not actually suggesting that anyone picks up Pile Solver. Um, it is a really good solver, but like you say, it's not what you're best spending your money on when you're playing 5NL or 10NL. You're better off um, either just focusing on exploitative stuff, like, like you're saying, or if you do want to learn a little bit of manageable GTO that can help you exploit people and help you get a win rate and move through the stakes, then that's why I'm creating something like Pile versus Population. So you can get the good bits of Pio simplified, I'll do all the digging so that you don't have to. I'll do all the explaining so that you don't have to figure out what the hell Pio is trying to do. That makes sense. It's like I've, I've had a, one student recently contact me about trying to learn Flopzilla. And even Flopzilla, for me, which is a really simple program, I mean, uh, the inputs are pretty simple. The outputs are, e are easy to understand. But Pio Solver, like you said, looks super complicated. So I, I'm really happy that you're putting together this kind of uh, doing the work yourself and then just presenting the information that we can use to exploit our opponents. I really like this product of yours. Um, so... So if you just use Pio Solver, right? You said, you know, pocket fours, we should be betting 84% of the time, according to Pio Solver. So if you, if you just play GTO, when you have pocket fours on a king, queen, jack, you're just going to basically be betting 100% of the time because you can't really control yourself to bet 84% of the time. Is that right? If, if you were just yeah. uh, using I mean, output to, to make your plays. Right. I mean, if you were just using output to make your plays... Um, a lot of things would go wrong for you firstly, like you would be playing far too robotically and you wouldn't be exploiting people enough based on your observations. So we always want to use Pio just as a disclaimer, as a kind of default idea and just sort of getting a feel for what the game theory looks like. But we'll very often leave that behind and just use exploits based on how we know people play. Mm -hmm. um, so depending on who your villain is, it may or may not be a good idea to bet pocket for us there. But what we're saying is that if you're playing against someone quite balanced, like you're playing against a relatively competent player who's going to have normal folding frequencies on the king queen jack board then it would recommend that you bet it more often than not let's say pocket threes the thing is that deuces will be bet more often than threes right because mm -hmm. deuces has less showdown value than trays has trays will be met more than fours will because fours has a higher ev to check because it has more showdown value mm -hmm. so in the product i explain why it's recommending this not just saying it's doing this back to your point Yes, it's pretty damn hard for us humans to do things 83% of the time intentionally. Um, what I would do in that case is I would ask myself, is it okay to just always bet this hand based on how the population plays? Yes, it probably is. They probably fold too much, if anything, on that board. Um, and therefore, we can take Pio's 83% recommendation and we can just say that hand is a high-frequency bet. What that means to me, high-frequency bet, is that you can bet it whenever you want. Um, and you'd need a fairly good reason not to bet it, basically. But as always, you know, we want to be open to the exploitative stuff, like who is villain? If he's a calling station, we're not going to try and follow that that GTO kind of recommendation at all. Yeah. Ah, uh, that makes total sense. Yeah. So when it comes to utilizing the GTO information you learn in order to exploit an entire population, so you had said earlier, uh, you know, you didn't know about. Uh, the people, my students and stuff, but most of your students would not be betting the pocket fours. Is yep. that kind of like how we use that information? Like maybe we want to bet for ourselves, but we also want to look at the other side of the spectrum. So we're in the big blind. We called King, yes. Queen, Jack. We know our opponent is not betting their fours, their fives, their sixes. So we should go ahead and take a stab on the turn. Is that kind of how we use the information? Yeah. Well, basically if they don't, that's a really good way of using it. If they aren't um, betting 
So they're basically not hitting their bluffing frequency on the flop because they're missing hands that are high frequency bluffs like the block fours, and they're doing that on a fairly regular basis. So we take that and we say, okay, now their checking range gets kind of overloaded with some really weak hands because they're not turning enough stuff into bluffs. Does that make sense? They kind of yes. end up with this big bucket full of weak hands that they should have bet. So absolutely, one of the things we could do against that is lead the turn with some hands that we maybe shouldn't be able to lead the turn with in theory. So, you know, the solver might suggest that if Phil and checks back flop, then in game theory, his range is protected enough that we can't just always lead with 8-7 offsuit when we flatted that to the small raise out of the big blind. But as big blind, we might in reality decide that whenever we have 8-7, we can lead really profitably because the population leaves all these air combos and under pairs dangling in their checking range and overloads that checking range with, with crap, basically. So we can, we can attack them more. That's definitely one way that we could use it. A more direct and simple way on the flop that we could use it um, before you even get to that more advanced exploit would just be we fold more to their flop bets because they don't put enough bluffs in there. Ah. Folding is an exploit as well. People forget that because they love to raise to, to beat their opponents. They love to do glamorous things. But simply folding against someone who doesn't bluff enough is a very powerful exploit in the long term. Without a doubt, a penny saved is a penny earned in poker 100%. Indeed. Nice, nice. So um, you, you had sent me your, uh, the, f- the first volume of the e-magazine, Pio versus Population. I really appreciate it. I do have a couple questions for you. Um, sure. So GTOs, you said in the document that they solve or they operate by assuming uh, three different things. They, they look at, or not assuming, they look at three different things. The position of the players involved, the yep. range advantages, and the SPR. Um, yep. And I found that really interesting. Why is SPR such an important aspect to this? Well, SBR controls the options that players have. So SBR means stack to pot ratio. Um, and what it basically governs is how many bets are left behind in relation to the pot size. So how many pot size bets are left? If we have an SBR of one, we only have one pot size bet left. This would occur in a very big four bet, or five bet pot or against a short stack or in a three bet pot or something like that. Um, the reason that SBR is really important to EV for a solver and for a human is that SPR is linked to the denial and or realization of equity. So for example, let's take this scenario, right, where you have an SPR of two, right? Meaning that you have twice as much left in the stack as you have in the pot, okay? Mm -hmm. And you have a gut shot straight draw or an open-ended straight draw, right? So you have like seven, eight, and the board is 10, nine, three. I checked you, your SPR is two, and you decide to bet a half pot that open ender and I shove. How are you feeling when I shove on you with your open ender with your eight outs? And you're on the turn, let's say. So you've got even less equity. How yeah, I'm feel? not happy about it at all. One card left and you're commit you're basically committing me to this draw right now. Yep. Or you have to fold. And if you mm-hmm. fold, you surrender huge amounts of equity, right? Yeah. Now if the SBR was actually really deep there, I wouldn't be able to hurt you much by raising because you'd have so many implied or future fold equity to maneuver on the river. Basically, if you, were, if you had an SBR of 50 and I raised you on the turn, you could call. And if my range was too strong, you would make money by implied odds when you got there, making money off me when you make your hand. If my range was too weak, you'd be able to do things in the river and take advantage of it by getting fold equity later by raising or betting on the river. So when the SBR is small, like two, as we saw, you don't have any of those options. That's why you're having to fold. So Pio is going to adapt to that by saying, wait a minute, I'm not going to put myself in a spot where I have to fold and surrender this big slab of the pot to my equity. I'm going to check behind on the turn. So the SPR there, the side to pot ratio, has actually governed almost single-handedly how often Pio will bet the turn with these kind of draws. Now that will then have a domino effect on the rest of the strategy. If we start checking back a lot of our draws on the turn, we're going to have to start checking back a few um, value hands and showdown value hands more now and slow playing a bit more also. So yeah, SBR has a very big effect because it directly affects the realization and denial of equity and it directly affects the implied odds, um, how much you know, profitability a draw will have by getting there and making the best hand and then getting paid off, all of these things. Gotcha. So your e-magazine here, uh, is it taking like 100 big blind stacks into account for SPR? Yes. We are okay. always working with 100 big blind stacks unless stated otherwise. So any spot we look at is going to be the most common spot that we see in the population, which is just, or that we see in games, which is just going to be 100 big blind. 
yeah. um, cash games. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Have you ever tried to work out these GTO solutions utilizing like, you know, a lot of your fishiest opponents? Well, I guess fishiest opponents aren't playing anywhere near optimal. So right. why would you, you know, do a 40 big blind stack, huh? To the words right out of my mouth, I wouldn't okay. bother because if they're playing with 40 big blind stacks, they're playing so obviously far away from GTO that we almost don't even care what GTO is in the first place. It's like, Imagine that you are walking through the woods and you're on a track and you get a little bit lost. Um, you can still see where the track is and that helps you navigate where you are. So you can say, okay, the track's over there. I can see that clearing, blah, blah, blah. I can make my way back to where I need to be because you can see that path. Now, if you're so far lost in the woods that you're nowhere near any track, the location of any tracks will not help you, right? It won't actually give you any kind of useful roadmap. You're better off just acknowledging where you are and trying to go from there. So the point is that the way weaker players play is so, so, so far removed from anything that resembles GTO that using GTO as a reference point wouldn't even help you. Mm. I see. That's why your e-magazine recommends like this is kind of, these are the kind of strategies you would use against other regs at the table who right. more or less know what they're doing. Yeah. And when I say know what they're doing, we don't mean they're anything close to, they're closer to GTO. They, they base their game so it's not unrecognizable from an optimal solution. Um, but yeah, they they still have major leaks, and that's why we need something like Pyro versus Population to say the solver would beat these players because it would do this good thing they're not doing, like betting the pocket fours quite often on King, Queen, Jack, for example. We can beat them even better than the solver can because we aren't just playing game theory against them. We're seeing how they're not playing well, and then we're like taking a human standpoint and being like, how do I design a counter strategy? So in Pio versus Population, Pio does the first bit. Pio does the investigating diagnostic work and it says this is what people are doing wrong. I do the next bit, which is drawing upon years of experience to say, and this is what we do about it. I love it. I love it, man. So uh, looking at your e-magazine, Pio versus Population, um, you know, you lay out the, the situation, which you had just discussed, big blind, I'm sorry, the button opens, the big blind calls, and they have their, um, I guess, game theory optimal ranges to start off. And then the flop comes down, king, queen, jack. And then your document um, basically discusses what the GTO solution for betting from the button's perspective is. Yep. And then after that, you have this next section that's all about observations and revelations, you know, right. what you observe and then what it reveals about the different style of play. Can you talk about that section of uh, your document? Yeah, so this is where we get into the heart and soul of Pio versus Population. We look at the solution. So we look at like how often the button is betting various parts of its range, like which hands is it betting a lot with, what hands does it prefer to check with. For example, it will check a lot with jack six there, suited if it's opened it because it's a showdown value hand, right? This is very human, very understandable for us too. It doesn't gain a lot by betting. It's way ahead or way behind. It's sort of trying to get towards showdown. Maybe it'll catch one street of bluffing, maybe. Mm -hmm something like that. We make sense of that. So we see how it's doing all these things. The observations are parts of the strategy that we think are quite normal. There are things that we understand and we can come to understand quite easily. For example, oh, we bluff a lot with an ace with a backdoor draw there. Like, okay, we have a gutter, we have an overcard, we have a backdoor flush draw. It makes sense. So that's a higher EV hand to bluff with. But when we put all that together, um, we also see some other things as well that are less obvious and also somewhat surprising for the human population. And these are the things I call revelations because, yeah, like you said, um, they reveal to us how the population doesn't play like Pio. So when mm -hmm. we see Pio betting the pocket fours, for example, keep going on about this one example, and there's other ones on there as well that you should bet an offsuit ace very, very often on this texture as well because you're short of bluffs. You're kind of starved of bluffs naturally in your range and you have to use gutters and things like that if you want to hit any kind of normal bluffing frequency to balance all those many, many value hands that you yeah. have, right? So um, there's lots of things like that that we call revelations. But the, the beautiful thing is that what the revelations are is going to change dramatically based on every single spot because poker is such a diverse and massive game. In future episodes of this e-magazine, um, you're going to see all kinds of different spots. And in each one of them, all the exploits are going to be totally different because they're going to reveal different things about how the population plays. But yeah, to summarize, the observations are just like, Let's get acquainted with a solution, just get the rough ideas of it, put the PIO into like human language, put the GTO into more kind of normal language. And then we look at the more surprising elements and see what they reveal about how we can destroy our opponents, basically. 
I see. I see. So how would you recommend, so you have observations and revelations, but how would you recommend somebody actually putting these to use in their games? Like what can they actively do the next time they sit down to a session uh, and that flop comes King, Queen, Jack, whether they're the button or whether they're the caller, how can they translate or yeah, how can they put this stuff into action? Really good question. First thing, be aware of who you're up against because if you're playing against a very bad player, then like I said, you're so far away from the GTO that you're better off just asking yourself, okay, against this maniac, should I bet pocket threes? Probably not because I'll get bluff raised all the time when he has like a handy should be folding or something like that, right? So we don't want to do that. Um, if we have established that our opponent is actually a more normal regular, is a normal sort of aware player who's at least trying to think a little bit strategically, then we can start to deploy our revelation. So then we can say, okay, he's just bet there. I know that he doesn't find enough bluffs in this box. I've seen what Pio does, and I know it's not what all my students do and all your students do and what all the regs do that we both play against every day. So I'm going to just fold this jack seven. This jack seven here looks like third pair. It looks like it should be called because it's a piece of the board. But against the population, it doesn't bluff enough. It's actually a fold, and that's an exploitative fold, and that's making you money. That's just one example. Your mm -hmm. idea about when he does check back, his range becomes more overloaded with um, bad hands and we can start probing the turn more. That's another good idea. There's lots and lots of different revelations you can make here for this spot. In-game, um, how do we make sure we're doing it? We have to be able to simplify it down. So instead of saying something like, oh, it should be bet X percentage of the time, we just want to put it into really broad language. We want to just say, okay, this spot gets under bluffed. Bam, that's it, done. Spots under bluffed, we overfold. He doesn't bluff enough, then we don't call enough. That's how it works. That's how I react. So put it into very broad, vague terms. Don't be too specific about it. Um, but I don't know. I think you had a few ideas, right, when we were chatting um, a few days ago about um, other ways you could extend the process, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, in my podcast and in my books, I always try to give, once I teach some kind of a strategy, I try to give a challenge or a task, something that they can do on the felt or off the felt to definitely put it to use and practice it because there's too many, too many books, too many videos out there that tell you a strategy and they just kind of leave it up to you to take notes and to figure out how to use it. Right. So I always try to give my students, uh, you know, tasks to practice this stuff and, and, uh, uh, I would like to see with this, I don't know, I mean, you give really good observations or revelations. Everything makes total sense. But if I'm not actually sitting down and trying to think through this stuff big time, I, I might not be able to come up with my own actions if I'm reading this. Do you know what I mean? Sure. That's why the, the revelations are very like concise. You know, It's mm -hmm. kind of like we should lead turns more on these kind of textures against regs. We should fold flops more than you would think on these kind of textures against regs. So what I would do is I'd create a tag for it in poker tracker four and i would call it um you know you could even call it pio versus population one or whatever you wanted to call the tag and uh -huh. um, just something that encompasses that lesson that you've learned or whatever other lesson that may be in poker that you've learned and then go to the tables play a session after the session while the hands are still really fresh in your head and you're in that in game zone tag all of the hands that you think were anything to do with that spot and go through and assess your play take notes in the notebox as well, write how you did. You need to personalize it. You know, you need to make this about your journey and about the hands that you have played mm -hmm. because that's how it will resonate with you. So I get my, I have a very expansive tagging system that I use in Poker Tracker um, or Holder Manager, obviously, to organize hands. I would have tags for each lesson that you're learning and I would take notes and I would be productive. I would create things, not just receptively listen and then hope that you can apply it you need to bridge the gap between reading theory and putting stuff into practice. And the only way you can really do that, honestly, is to produce stuff, like produce decision-making in an out-of-game context where you've got a bit of time to bridge that gap. So I always say to my students, you know, set yourself 10 minutes and go over 10 hands in that time, writing very short bullet point notes. Then go over them again and see how you did. Repeat that process in three days' time and see if you did a better job. We have to somehow break this dreaded divide that you mentioned between just receptive learning and then sitting at the tables being in a completely different frame of mind and not applying any of it. Nice. Yeah, totally. I really like, I've, I've never thought of that idea that you just now said, tag hands, study them, come back three days later, 
after you've done more playing and maybe even more studying, review those hands again to see if you've learned or maybe spotted additional mistakes or things that you could pay attention or catch for future hands. I really like double studying hands like that. That's something that, Hey, that's a good idea. I'm going to start teaching that to my students. Yeah. I mean, we should, we should share all this information out to help people teach poker in the best way, because after all, like we want people to be able to learn. We want like poker information to be accessible because we're putting so much time into it. And you know, there's just nothing worse than training materials that are just like, this is what you do. Not going to tell you why, not going to tell you how, just yeah. copy me. There's nothing worse, right? So mm-hmm. we need to fight against that um, as much as we can. Yeah, absolutely. Oh man. So uh, I really liked this first, this first e-magazine is awesome. How often are you going to produce new ones? I'm going to shoot for every month. I'm going to have an episode, the next episode out towards the end of the month it will be. So towards the end of November, start of December, episode two will be out. Episode one is currently on sale at my website, carrotcorner.com. And there is a subscription on there where you basically, if you go to my website, there's a little yellow box at the top and it says um, subscribe. You enter your email address there and you will get basically notifications every time I publish free stuff, which is nice, like articles and things like that, or podcasts, but also um, notifications when um, paid products like new books come out or new episodes of the magazine Pio versus Population or, or whatever it is I'm going to make in the future. So that's a good way to stay, um, to keep track of what's actually going to be released and when on my site. Nice, man. Actually, you know, I, I, I've never done that. I've never, I will subscribe today to your awesome. newsletter for sure. I'm subscribed to your podcast. And I have to tell you, Peter, I'm a little disappointed. You haven't put out too many no, episodes. I've always enjoyed your podcast, but there's just not enough. I'm the worst. I really am. <laughs> um, I can say though that next week I will be doing an interview with a, basically a guy got in touch with me recently and he was like, oh yeah, I was in a study group and some guys were talking about, you know, Clark says we should do this with our range and blah, blah, blah. Then I realized that that's, that's characters. And this was a guy that I came up through the ranks with in like 2010. Like we were in the same forum and we were like beginners together. And that was just really cool that we got talking again. And he's basically got 20 questions from his study group. And they're going to ask me, I don't know, they seem to think that I'm a ineffable well of wisdom or something. Mm-hmm. Like that. I'll take it. You know, I'm not going to complain. And I'll, I'll answer these, these 20 poker questions as best I can that I've never seen before in about half an hour so it'll be like a quick fire put me to the test kind of thing so um stay tuned for that that should be out um i don't know when your audience will be listening to this but this is um start of november 18 so that will be out probably mid november 18 um onwards basically Okay. Yeah. So that, uh, I think this episode will drop before that comes out, but I'll definitely have a link, uh, within the show notes for this episode to your, your own website, to the Pio versus population episode one, where they can purchase that. So I'll have links for everything right there, you know? Um, well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been so valuable, not just for me, but for the audience as well. Uh, thank you. I really do appreciate it. That's always a pleasure, Sky. You're one of the, the kind gentlemen of the poker world, and I'll come on this show anytime and talk to the audience. It's always always a good time. Nice. I'm glad to hear that. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your day, Peter. You too, sir. Take care. All right. I totally hope that you enjoyed that interview. I really did enjoy talking to him. We chatted a little bit before the interview, a little bit after too. So I, in those two chats, and he also sent me PO versus population uh, episode one through those two chats. And by reading it and studying it, I learned a little bit more about the product itself. So let's discuss a few things here. First off, PO Solver is the program that he's talking about. You can check it out at uh, posolver.com, P-I-O-Solver.com. And now this is taken directly from the website. This is what it says. PO Solver is a very fast GTO solver for Hold'em. It handles post-flop spots with arbitrary starting ranges, stack sizes, bet sizes, as well as desired accuracy. It's the first in a new generation of tools moving poker from a game based mainly on intuition to a game based on analysis and math. PO Solver answers questions which were impossible to answer before. What should the betting frequency on the flop be? What hands are the best semi-bluffs on the turn? What hands are the best bluff catchers on the river? Which c-bet size is the best to use on the flop? It calculates optimal strategies, exact values of every play in every situation, and displays the results in a user-friendly, easy-to-navigate display. All right, so that's what it says on the site. Now, I've downloaded the free basic version. I haven't used it yet, so I can't speak to anything that it just mentioned. But according to Peter Clark, 
the program really does do what it says it does. I just can't speak from experience, you know. Um, so I've downloaded that free version. I will try it out soon. I'll probably create some videos or maybe do a full podcast on what I learned from just using the free version. But the full version costs $249. So it's a little bit pricey. But you heard in the podcast how Peter does not recommend for you to buy the software and try to follow what he's doing. You know, he's doing this. He's created this product. So you don't have to learn a new software. You don't have to take the time to figure out how to do the inputs or change inputs and how to really, I guess, to utilize and understand the software. You know, I've spent so much time working through Flopzilla, working through Poker Tracker 4. If I had to work through a brand new program again, learn it basically from scratch, from the bottom up, I'm not a big fan of that and a 249 investment plus probably 20, 40 hours in time just to get the basics. I'm not so popular uh, or not popular. I'm not so fond of that idea. And that's why Peter Clark created PO versus population so that you can learn from the work that he does with the software. Now, Peter's going to release new episodes every single month. And let me tell you what to expect from each episode of PO versus population. So a new one every month, like I said. Peter's going to lay out a common situation and using PO Solver, he's going to break down the solution for that situation. So for example, uh, in, in episode one, it's all about a button raiser, a big blind caller, and the flop comes down, king, queen, jack, rainbow. Alrighty, so after he goes over the solution for the uh, for the situation, he's going to give you a list of observations that he takes away from the solution. Now, these observations are the GTO way for us to play the solution. And in this first episode, it's how we should play as the preflop raiser on the button, which is a situation we're in all the time, right? The next thing he's going to give you is a list of revelations. Now, the revelations are what you can do to exploit the regular players at your stakes. Now, it's darn near impossible for a human being to play game theory optimal poker. But if you know the solution, and you know how the regular players deviate from that solution, and hey, you are a regular player, right? When you look at those observations, there's going to be some things in those observations, ways that PO Solver tells you to play, that you would probably never play that way because it seems so weird or counterintuitive or whatever, right? Well, you are a regular player. The others at your stakes, a lot of them are regular players too. Now that you know what you're doing wrong, you also know what they are doing wrong. So the revelations are going to tell you how to exploit those regs at your states, uh, stakes. And that's actually the goal of each episode of PO versus population, giving you a GTO solution for a common situation and bam, telling you how to exploit the regs at your stakes using it. Now, I read through and I studied episode one and I took plenty of notes from it. I now have a better understanding of how I should approach those Broadway rainbow boards, things like King, Queen, Jack, Rainbow. Uh, when I'm the preflop raiser, I know how to approach them now. I also have a game plan for how to exploit preflop raisers on this type of board. And I guarantee I'm going to be using these, these exploits and these observations that I learned. I'm going to be using them in my upcoming sessions. Challenge! Here's my challenge to you for this episode. Visit CarrotCorner.com, and there's a link in the show notes as well. When you go there, sign up for his newsletter at the top of the page. Next, you're going to click on the button that says PO versus Population. On the next page, you're going to learn a little bit more about the first episode and what to expect from future ones. You can also purchase the first episode for 4.49 euros. And then next, you might as well visit posolver.com. Go there just to learn more about the program. And you can, of course, download that free version if you want to test it out. Now it's your turn to pull the trigger and do something positive for your poker game. You better wake up. The world you live in is just a sugar-coated topping. There is another world beneath it. The real world. And if you want to survive it, you better learn to pull the trigger. So, of course, this episode is not complete until you head to the show notes page at www.smartpokerstudy.com slash pod 211. And I'm sorry for the length of this episode. It's a long one, but I hope it's been valuable for you. Thank you very much for listening all the way up until now. Um, when you go to the show notes page, you're going to see screenshots and links to everything discussed today and to discover ways in which you can support the podcast and keep me keeping on. 
Well, thanks again for listening and listening all the way up until now. Like I said, please leave a review for the show on your favorite podcatching app. That is the best way, other than that direct word of mouth, that you can help the show grow. If you can type or say the words Smart Poker Study, you can find me on Alexa, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Twitch. And please send me your questions, sky at smartpokerstudy.com. Alrighty, poker people, in next week's episode number 212, I'm going to discuss the preparations for my next live tournament. It's called the 14th Annual Turkey Shoot, and it's run by my cousin and one of his good buddies. I've won the tournament twice now, and I've chopped it four or six ways, uh, two different times as well. So I'm hoping to have another good result in it. So I've got to do some preparing. And I figured if I'm going to prepare for this live tournament, I might as well share my preparations with you. And it is a uh, three-table, $125 tournament. So wish me luck! Word of mouth is the best advertising. So thank you very much for sharing the show with other poker people. Your sharing and caring is what helps us grow. Until next time, study smart. Play much and make your next session the best one yet.